Welcome to the Novel Ideas Podcast. The Novel Ideas Podcast, a podcast with two siblings who love books. That's why I make sure to water my books every day so they'll grow nice and big. That is exactly how books work. Yeah, that's why Stephen King's books are so long. He waters them every day. I know. I mean, like, it's it's actually pretty easy. Like, writing a novel isn't that hard as long as you do water and sunlight. Yeah, we did a little bit and you're good. That's right. Turns out. Turns out. Only if you're in England, though. <laughs> oh, there's Not a, if you're in India. There's a catch. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, anyone who's not a white Western European. Oh, well, then it should work pretty well in Kansas and Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still good over here, then. <laughs> you got it. Uh. So. We read uh, The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. It's a classic children's tale about finding a secret garden and growing a garden, basically. <laughs> Pretty much what it says on the can. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Uh, we read this particular book because I am currently designing The Secret Garden and two, um, two of Burnett's other books as my... Some of my final project work for my last semester of grad school, and I thought, well, I've already read this, so I'm not going to have very much time to read this semester, so I'll just make Ben read what I'm reading. Which is honestly kind of what you have to do when <laughs> the grad school thing starts getting busy. Yeah, I have not completed a book in a while since I read these, so... Ah. I did listen. I, I've been picking up audiobooks because I take the dog on walks, and like I get a lot. Of, I get a fair number of books read that way. Um, I listened to the first fifteen hours of The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, which is like was hot shit a year or two ago. I don't know if it's still considered hot shit. Um, and uh, it's about thirty-one hours long. I got fifteen hours into it and went. I still don't know if I hate this book or not. <laughs> so I decided to stop listening to it for a while. <laughs> but if I ever finish it out, I thought I might make you read it, even though it's like 12,000 pages long. I think Erica might have that sitting around somewhere. Yeah, I saw in Goodreads that she liked it, so. Yeah. She could come join the podcast and then feel bad when I tell her that I think it's not that good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I say there are far too many ways for us to make Erica feel sad because she is a very nice person and we are <laughs> less so. <laughs> we are cruel. <laughs> Scott asked if we were going to keep this particular episode PG so like little kids who like the secret garden could listen to this episode and I was like that is highly unlikely <laughs> I mean I hadn't thought of that until you said it so probably not <laughs> yeah I was like I'm too excited to call Colin like a little fucker yeah. to, <laughs> to, to keep that up so <laughs> so yeah if you have your little fuckers listening right now warn them they might hear some of this shit <laughs> In fact, I'm imposing a minimum of one swear per 60 second rule for the rest of this podcast. Oh God, that seems it's going to be, that, that's a, that's a little tough. <laughs> this, this is going to become a Martin Scorsese film up in here. <laughs> uh. Uh, yeah, 
so, I mean, the good thing is that even though I, you know, did read this for school, uh, luckily it is a classic children's novel, so it still does kind of fit into our, uh, one of our several categories that we try to touch on from time to time. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, children's novel, I guess that is still a thing. Um, I don't know if it would be like a children's children's novel. Like, where'd you aim this at? Like, maybe like 10-year-olds probably now? Yeah, my, um, like the audience that I'm aiming for in my design of the books is like 8 to 12. Okay. Because I figured um, if you had like a, precocious third grader could definitely read these this book yeah um and then yeah like up into late middle or late late uh, elementary school early middle school and then maybe by the time you hit eighth or ninth grade you would still like it but start feeling like it's a little too young for you um is my is where is where i would put it at least um and fun fun fact so unlike most like 98 percent of her episodes i've actually done a touch of research <laughs> because i had to for school um so fun fact if anyone's curious about the history of children's novels uh they've been making books for kids basically ever since the printing press was invented but for a lot of years it was either bible stories or just morality tales about how if you didn't like you know eat your vegetables when your parents told you to then satan was gonna take your soul or whatever um and it wasn't more until, like, the mid to late 1800s that people started saying, like, oh, we could write books for kids that aren't, that aren't faith-based or, like, super morality-based. Um, so Frances Hodgson Burnett is one of the earlier children's books authors. This, this would not be considered, like, the original, because she wrote several before this one, and there are some other ones written in the 1800s, but um, it is one of the... I would say like early ones in the in the genre. So there you go. There's some there's some publishing history that I'm sure no one cares about. <laughs> I I mean I think it's at least a little bit interesting, but I I think our listeners would be totally into that gap. You sell it short. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just think it's kind of interesting because like. Uh, to think about the sorts of things, like, I mean, even this, as a kid's book, it is, it is simpler than, than, you know, like a classic, like Dickens or something. Um, but sometimes you think about like, if like before, I guess, children's books really came along, like in addition to reading the morality shit directed at you, you were basically just reading like adult books. Right. <laughs> And, like, trying to wrap your head around shit that, like, we read today and we're like, oh, my God, this is impossible. And, you know, sometime in the past, like, an eight-year-old had to read that, so. I wonder what. I think the invention of children's books is a good thing. I wonder what people a hundred years from now will think of the things we market towards children. Yeah. <laughs> uh I mean, aside from the observations that people already make about some of that stuff, but 
like only 10% of it is going to be things that anybody ever reads again, even like 10 or 20 years from now, probably. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So plot synopsis. Then I give this one to you because you, you came up with a good pun when I asked for one. <laughs> Dicking around in the garden makes you feel good. Dickin, so <laughs> I requested a stupid pun and Ben delivered. And I delivered. Dickin is in the garden and he does make people feel good, it's... but they also dick around in the garden. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, so just in case like anyone's never read The Secret Garden and only kind of vaguely knows what it's about, just like a real, real quick little summary. Uh, Mary, who's the main character, she is in India because of British colonialization, and her parents and everyone who lives in her house dies of cholera, so she has to move to England to go live with her uncle, uh, and her uncle basically is a total recluse who never talks to anybody, so... She shows up and they're basically like, I don't know, just like wander around outside or whatever. And she discovers this garden that's been hidden for a number of years and gets like super stoked about it because it's this mystery and starts working and regrowing the garden. And then she discovers that she has a cousin living in this house that they've like secreted away. He lives in this like remote part of the house because they all think he's like gonna die and he's super sick and she basically discovers that he's not really it's just like all in his head and that if he would stop being such a little piece of shit that he'd be fine and they introduce him to the secret garden and then yay (laughs) and there you go yeah the end (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's mostly just about Kids, neglected children who need more parental supervision, who get all of their entertainment from growing things in a garden, because that's all they have. Yeah, you know how some people complain about parents just letting the television raise their kids back in um, the turn of the 20th century England, people complain about gardens just raising people's kids for them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It was a thing! (laughs) But it was good for them, apparently, so... Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the story... Um, op- I, it, it opens in India and then very quickly moves to Mistlethwaite Manor in England. Yes. Um, Mistlethwaite Manor. In, uh, in Yorkshire, England, which yep. is, like, vaguely northern, um, eastern England-ish... And it's off of a moor, a windy moor, just like in uh, Wuthering Heights. Yes. Uh, or Hounded the Baskervilles. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> uh, and in case you're not sure it's in Yorkshire, they use the phrase Broad Yorkshire 9,000 times in the course of this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they definitely do. <laughs> You gotta know that these folksy people are all speaking in the Yorkshire accent dialect. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so you have to know all these these folksy folks are in the Yorkshire. Um, I think one of the kind of interesting things about the the point of view of this story is you don't have like the first person for Mary, which is good. Um, <laughs> but then it's it's not just like third person 
close entirely around her there's kind of this hint of like detached narration so like sometimes he's just like or he or she i guess wow gabs that was that's pretty bad calling the narrator a he <laughs> um yikes treat myself like a like a feminist punch right there um the narrator often is like close and like telling you what mary's thoughts are but then it uh, the narrator also makes kind of like observations about her and gives opinions about her that are definitely things she's not aware of, you know. Oh, if Mary had, you know, realized that she should have grown up with people lo- loving her, then she might have been more upset by her parents dying, but that wasn't the case. So, you know, she was fine. Or uh, I think the first sentence, which is just says that she was like the most insufferable Oh, what's this? I have the book right here, and I really like the first sentence of this book. When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. (laughs) I was like, what a great opening! (laughs) Yeah, the narrator's not above delivering just a little bit of wry commentary. Yeah, so I really like that particular aspect of it, kind of stepping in occasionally and being like, by the way, if you were wondering, like, yes, Mary is a total brat, and it's cool to think that. <laughs> I was like, oh, right! Oh, you know what it kind of reminds me of, actually? Um, hmm. Roald Dahl, maybe? Yeah, I also kind of got a hint of that. Yeah. Maybe because of that, like, opening of Matilda, where the narrator's, <laughs> like... Most parents love their children, even though they're total worthless pieces of crap. There's a bit of dry British humor going on there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually an aspect of the of the tone of the novel that I I really like. Um, the other thing I like about it, and again, I like apologize for bringing up this project, but that's you know like taking up ninety percent of my life right now. <laughs> right. Um, is I had I read two of other Burnett's books, and in those other two books, both of the child protagonists are like very wonderful little children. Like they're a little weird, but like everyone loves them and they're so nice to everybody. And it, the books are not about like them learning something or growing. It's more about um, the people around them learning a lesson. Hmm. And so I thought it was really refreshing to open the secret garden and right away have the narrator be like, this is not about a perfect child protagonist. This book is about a little shit. I was like, excellent. <laughs> I'm tired of writing about perfect children protagonists. <laughs> yeah, I am I am ready to read that. So I was pretty, pretty stoked about that. Um, all right, so protagonist Mary. Let's go ahead, I guess, and talk about her besides the fact that she's a... Uh, disagreeable-looking child. <laughs> I mean, she is a disagreeable child, I think, period, for a bit, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, she's pretty spoiled. She was the um, child of some, at least somewhat influential colonial types and was fawned over by servants for her entire childhood. Uh, when she gets... When she gets to England after basically everybody dies of disease. <laughs> In chapter one. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty crazy opening, actually. It, it, it really is. Uh, 
And when she, like, when she gets to England, she can't even dress herself, for example. Yeah, she's so used to, to ordering the servants around that she doesn't even do things like dress herself. And admittedly... And she's ten. Yeah, and admittedly, it was harder to dress oneself. <laughs> it took more than just pulling on a pair of pants, sweatpants, and walking out the door, but uh, that's the kind of thing that most ten-year-olds have gotten together. Yeah, there's this great... <laughs> Part of Mary's character, you know, the the book lets you know it's not just, she's not just, like, an inherently shitty person, like, because these servants in India, whether under instruction from her parents or because they thought, like, you know, that was the best way to keep their jobs or whatever, um, just did everything she told them to do, so she was one of those people who becomes a jerk because they get everything they want all the time, and... They think the world revolves around them. Um, and it's great when she gets to England and has this interaction with the maid, Martha. And she's like, all right, you know, get dressed for breakfast. And Mary, like, goes and stands there and just, like, holds out her arms and is waiting for Martha to dress her. And she's like, Martha's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Mary's like, um, my Aya used to dress me. And she's like, girl, my, like, five-year-old sister can dress herself. I... <laughs> What is wrong with you? <laughs> right, I'm not dressing your dumb aristocratic butt. Yeah, it's awesome. So I was I was pro Martha. It was great. <laughs> um, but like on the other hand, you know, despite these things about Mary, and she does learn to be less like that. She has to become more self sufficient. But um, the thing I liked about her is that she's like a very stubborn, straightforward person because she, I guess, just, like, never really learned otherwise. Um, but that, like, actually makes her really likable occasionally because she just says things like they are and doesn't worry about dancing stuff up or dancing around the subject. She just says it, and that's really refreshing a lot of the time. Oh, sure. I mean, they're... <laughs> I, I think that's a... I think that kind of fits into a character type you see occasionally that I usually enjoy in fiction. Yeah. Uh, the, the straightforward, slightly stubborn. I mean, really, she kind of, as she learns to be um, more social and um, more, like, typically human, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> she kind of goes from being... Um, spoiled, they, they refer to her as contrary, but she goes from, like, disagreeably contrary to, like, um, kind of usefully contrary. <laughs> yeah. I think she learns how to use her stubbornness to better, to better ends. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, sometimes the fact that she is straightforward, like, you learn some stuff about her, sometimes you kind of feel bad for her, like, uh, in one of the chapters when she's talking to the gardener and it's just straight up like, I'm pretty sure no one's ever liked me, including the people who were supposed to like me. She's like, I think maybe for the first time I like someone. Uh, hopefully, I think at one point she says, now I like three people and I know at least two people like me. And I was like, damn. <laughs> that's, like, that's like a super uh, like self-aware analysis of your life and I don't think a lot of people would be brave enough to just straight up say that I think in a way too it's almost like she's having to progress from 
like an earlier stage of childhood because I think the about the only time you hear something like that said is from like a three or four year old going to like preschool for the first time and they go I have three friends and I think two of them are friends with me too yeah (laughs) it's like the age of child you'd expect to hear that from and then even just a couple years later I think you you get too (laughs) self-aware or too like self-conscious is what I'm looking for to do that anymore yeah, to to start keeping track of that, but yeah, an eight Mary year old, has to. An eight-year-old would be <laughs> a lot more black and white about it. They'd be more likely to be like, everybody likes me or nobody likes me. Yeah, totally. The, depending on the day. <laughs> As a 28-year-old, that's basically how I operate. <laughs> everybody likes me. Nobody <laughs> likes me. Some days I'm like, I have so many friends and it's great and I love everything. And the next day I'm like, nobody loves me. <laughs> so, Eve Mary is, is I, I got to respect her. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, okay, well, who, who else who else we got? Um, well, I guess you can compare her to Colin, her cousin. Yeah. Colin and Mary, I guess, like, kind of follow the same trajectory. They're not spoiled for the same reasons, but they kind of have the same... I think they're supposed to have the same progression when they where they start out really, like, spoiled and self-centered and then, and then like, learn to grow. Um, but Colin's thing is that uh, he grew up his whole life thinking that he's going to get sick and die, basically. Because yeah. um, his dad is apparently a hunchback, but it's, like, not even pronounced enough to cause any problems for him whatsoever. But apparently, like, everyone is terrified that Colin has a curved spine, and if he ever sits up or walks anywhere, then his, like, spine's going to break in half and he's going to die or something. I don't really know, like, exactly how that works, uh, but it's turned him into, like, a total, like... I'm sick all the time, and everyone has to cater my every need, and I'm always unhappy. And, I mean, granted, he's, like, shut up in a room and never allowed to do anything, but... Yeah, he has, like, that undiagnosable, um, like, plot-convenient illness. It's just he has the version of it that can be made better by doing healthy things, as opposed to the version where someone's generically sick just so they can be tragically killed off at the exact right moment in the story (laughs) yeah i thought it was actually kind of interesting that he like everyone just everyone was so paranoid that he was going to be sick that they were actually making him ill um and and i was really surprised by that because even though i've seen the secret garden movie um and like have heard about it before i actually had always thought that he um he actually did have something going on, and I also thought that Mrs. Um, Medford, was that her name? The woman who's, like, in charge of the house while the dad's out? Uh, Medlock, um, maybe? I was under the... Medlock. Not Medford. That's a that's a city in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I was always under the impression that she was way more antagonistic, and she was like lying 
to everyone and saying, like, Colin can't walk because he's so sick. And then, like, them um, discovering that he could walk was like, oh, she's going to, like, get her comeuppance. And then when I read the book, I was like, oh, she's, like, not a bad person and everyone thinks this. And it's, like, not a huge dramatic thing. I was really surprised by that, actually. Uh, I thought it was like a big conspiracy by like the evil woman who runs the house. <sighs> but no, it turns out it wasn't. Right, yeah. Well, and then this whole, I mean, I guess it kind of bleeds over a little bit into other parts of this discussion, but um, you said that um, Francis Burnett Hodgson was kind of into like Christian science theosophy stuff later in her life, too. Yes, she was. So that idea of... Uh, like, just being in a negative atmosphere versus being in a more positive atmosphere and that affecting your physical health is pretty well in line with those ideas, I think. Yeah, it's totally a thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And when I read that, I was like, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, uh, but unlike with Mary, where we appreciate a lot of her her traits... I think I can safely say that neither Ben nor I really liked Colin, even after he stopped being such a little asshole. Well, yeah, he goes from being full of himself because he's been taught people have to always listen to what he does to being full of himself because he's a imperialist little boy. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> he's like, like, now I am healthy. Now I am the walking embodiment of the British patriarchy. <laughs> basically. <laughs> He's like, oh, I can walk now. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to take over this garden. I'm going to tell everyone what to do. I'm going to be the best doctor. I'm going to be the best athlete. I'm like, shut up, child. Jesus. <laughs> uh, and he's like ordering everyone around. And I'm like, Colin, you are terrible. I and then she keeps comparing him to a Raja. And I'm like, no, he's way too white and annoying to be a Raja. <laughs> I don't buy it. I wonder if... I wonder if some of that stuff we thought was annoying was intended to be a little more comical. Yeah, like, he's just being a silly kid. Yeah. Like, kind of thing. Well, yeah, he's just a cocksure boy, which is certainly not an uncommon idea. Um, or, yeah. Or reality, especially with little boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, Although if my son was doing that, I'd be like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll crush your hopes and dreams, child. <laughs> but, like, the idea that, you know, that he had um, Ben Weatherstaff, this gardener, the head gardener, basically, I think. Uh, yeah. Or groundskeeper. I actually think that he might have been a separate person from that. He had, like, a weird role on the staff. Cause he yeah. Was, he was a holdover. But, uh, like, they have this old, experienced guy listening to... Colin's decrees and buying into all of it and kind of being the comic relief character in those scenes. Uh, if that was supposed to... If that was just supposed to show us how ridiculous it all was, which, which it, I mean, that's... We definitely took ridiculous from it. We just didn't think it was ridiculous in a way that was funny as much as it was ridiculous in a way that was annoying. Yeah, it was mostly like once Colin's like, I'm going to give more scientific lectures. I was like, well, god damn it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how magic works. <laughs> uh, 
I'm ready for you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I feel healthy. I've discovered mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the magic is. That's what the oh, magic no! That is what the magic is. It's all you needed. <laughs> Turns out it's all you needed all along. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, Master Colin didn't walk. I was like, whatever. <laughs> uh, so the third member of the child trio um, is Dickon. He of Dickon around in the garden. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dickon makes me laugh. I was like rereading parts of the book, and basically, anytime anyone says anything, he's just like grinning and being like, eh. I'm like, oh, oh, Dickon. <laughs> you and your, like, little animal posse following you around everywhere. Well, these are cycles where people revive old-sounding names and they get cool again. Dickon has not been one of those as of yet. <laughs> that totally should be. That'd be incredible. I don't see that being a trend anytime soon, personally, but... <laughs> I'm going to try to... Try to convince Scott that Dickon needs to make a comeback. Uh, Dickon and Dorcas be perfect. <laughs> Dickon and Dorcas, and then all you need is a last name that makes it impossible to not be made fun of all the way through. Your <laughs> uh, uh. So Dickon is um, so Martha, the maid we were talking about. Dickon is Martha's little brother. So he lives, you know, in their cottage with 12 children or whatever, um, off the moor. And he is one of those people who's just naturally an animal magnet and a nature lover. And he can make any flower grow. And, like, he literally has crows and squirrels and rabbits following him around. And at one point, he's, like, carrying around a baby lamb. I mean, this dude is, like... (laughs) (laughs) Extremely in, in tune with with nature, like to a ridiculous degree. Yeah, the universe loves him so much that he couldn't even be a Disney princess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is totally like a little boy Disney princess. I <laughs> uh, and he just he has all this like folksy wisdom and all this like earthy knowledge that he's gotten from just. Being in nature. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's one part, I think it's one part, like, late romantic ideas, one part, you know, when you said animal magnet, the term animal magnetism comes from Christian science. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I did not know that. So, I mean, that kind of, that, that triggered that, <laughs> and, uh. Also, what I was wondering, because he does seem to have these borderline magical powers, and he seems to be there just to let these two wealthy kids, like, become healthy, non-sickly people, if he's filling the magical Negro trope a little bit, um, and doing it as a, just basically filling the role by being a poor person, among the aristocrats, since northeastern England at that time period probably didn't have a whole hell of a lot of actual black people around, I'm guessing? Yeah, probably not, is also my guess. Uh, yeah, when Ben first said that, I laughed, but then I, when I thought about it, I was like, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, if you're saying like, oh, this is uh, the early 20th century England all white people version of the magical Negro trope, I mean, it kind of is like, here's a folksy wisdom guy who's doesn't really have an inner life himself and is there to to help out the rich kids, like. And with the Yorkshire accent, I was totally picturing like a mystery oh, yeah. show accent. Someone starts putting on to. <laughs> Uh, help this, you know, help help this this wealthy white character out or whoever they are. Totally. Although, um, I guess like the one strike against that would be um, Mary and Collins start learning to speak in Yorkshire, and that's like considered a good thing. Yeah, everyone thinks it's funny. Yeah. Like, the worst uh, the worst thing that ever happens is one of the other folks more accustomed to the aristocratic bearing just starts laughing and goes, oh, you've learned to put that on pretty well. Whereas I'm pretty sure if this had been taking place in Alabama of that time period and an aristocratic white kid did that, his nursemaid or whoever would probably slap the words right out of his mouth. If his dad would hit him with a belt or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, but here, because I think a big part of this book is all about, you know, like, connecting to nature, and, like, the kids are growing with the garden, and all of that fun parallel stuff, uh, and because Dickens, like, represents this, like, down-home earthiness, that's, like, a really great positive thing, anytime the kids pick up that stuff, like, it's, it's also helping their own, like, growth and education, and, um, when Mary sees Mrs. Medlock putting on her Yorkshire at the beginning to be able to talk to people. I don't know, the book almost seemed to suggest, like, hey, learning how to do this will help you, like, speak to the people around you. It's like a, like, learning a second language, almost. Um, so. Yeah, I do, I mean, the intent was to, was definitely to say, like, you know, the connection with nature or being more grounded, you know, the people who speak this accent have, are in touch with reality. They're not worried about, you know, they, they haven't been being told they're going to die their whole lives. They live their lives, and uh, it, it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> it certainly didn't come across as like, I'm trying to make this, have this weird message about, like, class or something worked into here. That, I wasn't so much getting that vibe. Uh, yeah. And if anything, it kind of, in some ways, it goes... Um, against type. Um, another kind of tropey thing I've read and seen uh, is the thing where, like, oh well, you know, here's this mysterious, here's this mysterious child, and then it turns out like they have all these, just like they're above average athletically, and they just speak so well, and they have this noble bearing, and it turns out they're the, like the child of a king because you know the blue blood just shows through automatically, no matter yeah. whether you're raised by wolves or whatever the fuck. Yeah, totally, yeah. And, yeah, and in this, it's like, oh, well, the aristocratic characters are actually kind of sallow, sad sacks, and it takes <laughs> and it takes some just poor kid whose family lives on less per month than Mary gets an allowance every week uh, to be like, no, stop, like, just enjoy this. Look, birds are cool. Plants are cool. Stop being so goddamn depressing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, 
and Dickens' home life, Martha and Dickens' home life is definitely more positive than Mary and Colin, who are basically neglected in this giant house where adults who don't give a crap about them. And, like, Dickens and Martha's mother is... I mean, she's definitely, you know, like, the straightforward, like, motherly character, but she actually cares about her children and knows a thing or two about taking care of kids and, like, basically has to go up to Colin's dad a couple times and be like, listen, bro, like, (laughs) get your shit together and take care of those kids. And it's respected to some degree because she's not like the poor woman who has, like, a bit of character and people think she's funny, people are going, well, she's raised, what, like, 12 kids? You're like, yeah. if anyone knows anything about kids, it's this woman. <laughs> yeah, like, listen to what she has to say, because holy shit. They respect that. Anyone who's going to push 12 humans out of them deserves some respect. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, so aside from the kids, we have these other characters. They're not as important. Um, We briefly touched on Martha, Dickens' older sister, and, like, Mary's maid, uh, who I really like just because even though she is, you know, technically a servant and does take care of stuff, she's not afraid to speak her mind, uh, which I think was, like, a really cool aspect of her. She wasn't, like, all the, yes, ma'am, like, I'll do whatever you need whenever Mary did something she thought was weird she was like what's wrong with you like you've never seen a jump rope before like you're what the hell <laughs> right uh, uh, so I really appreciated her on that front that she was like even though she was a servant she was still allowed to be like a person yeah she yeah and she totally I mean she did an excellent job of playing the role of it shocking Mary out of whatever world she was thought she was living in yeah so i appreciated martha quite a bit and then we talked about ben weatherstaff a little bit earlier um the grouchy gardener guy who turns into a clownish colin cultist yeah i don't really get what his deal is because at first he's kind of just like the grizzled dude who doesn't really like anyone and he and Mary kind of reach this like mutual place of respect and then yeah later on in the book he just becomes like this goofy dude complaining about his rheumatism and whatever maybe it's supposed to he's supposed to help illustrate how the magic can take you from being an old grouch into being a funny person or something I don't know I don't know the name Weatherstaff, though, is pretty good. With a name like Ben Weather- Weatherstaff, you almost have to be, like, a wizard or, uh, um, he's kind of, what, was he, was, was that my, was it my, was it, uh, my metaphor, was it the book's metaphor, like a weathered old tree or something like that? Oh, that was your metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just thought. But I agree. He totally sounds like he'd be a wizard in Lord of the Rings. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> It's Weatherstaff. <laughs> Old man Weatherstaff. Weatherstaff the Green. <laughs> uh, we, we, of course, have to give a shout-out to the Robin, because he's kind of the inciting character a lot of times. He, um, flying around the garden, first first creature Mary ever likes and shows her the key to get into the garden in the first place, and... You know, as they're growing the garden, he, like, takes up and with a, with a mate, and they have, like, a nest of chicks and all that stuff, so. 
Yeah, and the Robin also is the thing that has prevented Ben from being a just totally dried up, sour old guy. Yeah. Because he and the Robin have like a weird one-sided, not weird really, more like charming, one-sided banter going on. Yeah. (laughs) Whether Sally talks to the Robin, it like jumps around and he's like, ah, you're a cheeky fellow. (laughs) Always showing off, y'all. (laughs) <laughs> and the robin just puffs out his chest and he's like, yep, I'm the best. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like the robin. <laughs> uh, and then Colin's dad, um, I just want to read the comment on our outline, which says that he's a sad, stupid hunchback. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, whatever, he sucks. Yeah, he's a bad Maybe uncle not. and a worse father, and he's basically not in the book, so who cares? Exactly. <laughs> I will say that he's not like he is not purposefully mean. That was one of the things I appreciate about his character is when he did meet Mary, and he's like he was genuinely interested in like providing her with things to make her happy. He just didn't want to actually like be involved in her life. Um, right. But he wasn't like he didn't like show up and be like you are confined to your room and can't do anything and like I'm an asshole he was like oh yeah you can like totally have your own little garden like do you need some books do you need me to get you a governess like like what can I do for you so but he was just so depressed about his wife being dead that he's like I can't even look at my son and I was like oh you're terrible <laughs> I bet once Colin works some magic on him his hunchback goes away no totally <laughs> Uh, the worst. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. I want to touch on some of these moral issues. Absolutely. Colonialism is like one of my favorite threads in the book, personally. I think if I had read this book as a kid, I would not have even picked up on it. And reading it as an adult, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Like, this is the thick of the Brits being in India and, like, those first couple chapters where Mary's there and they're talking about how, like, all these Indian servants basically have to do anything she says. Um, And then she gets to England and is just, like, her, her haughty attitude. I mean, she clearly thinks she's better than any servant and not just specifically the Indian servants but like the way she thinks about them and talks about them is just like so shitty of her um and you know that like that's not just oh we're gonna show that Mary is a brat because she thinks Indian people are beneath her like that's definitely a thing that like all children growing up in India would Sure. Right. Uh, and uh, also, you had, when we were outlining, you'd been talking about Martha referring to Indians as blacks. Yeah, and how, which was also shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, I guess, a, a different era sort of moment where you all, I. I don't know, like, it was kind of, it was, it was almost, like, not as racist as I expected it to be in some ways, though. Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was, like, at first I was, like, holy shit, and then at the same time I was, like, but that is, like, slightly less racist than I thought. And I was, like, what, what is Burnett doing exactly here? Um, 
so like when Martha first sees Mary, she's like, oh, you know, I thought you were going to be black because you grew up in India. And Mary's like, excuse me. Um, and so you kind of, you know, get this impression that people call Indian, or Martha at least, is like calling Indian people blacks the whole book. Um, which are like, wow, that's like not a thing you should do. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Um, but then one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about it was that Martha always is saying it in her dialogue, but whenever the narrator is talking about it, like I think in one chapter the narrator says, oh, you know, Martha told Mary about how she went home and, and talked to her family about India and all the blacks who lived there, and any time that's used like in the general narration as opposed to direct dialogue it's still always in quotation marks so the author is saying like oh hey this is something that like martha says but that like i am not going to use as an actual term and i didn't know if that was just a comment on you know like this is what people said but i don't necessarily believe in it or like exactly what that yeah. that was about i mean maybe who knows if anything was intended with that or not. You could, like, make a little bit of an argument. Now, it clearly wasn't, like, to the point of being thematic. It was just a little glimpse of something in the very first part of the book. But, um, you know, like, being raised in that colonial environment certainly didn't do any favors for Mary, um, both from a health standpoint, because white people basically are not built to live in a climate like India, uh, but also from a behavioral standpoint where she was kind of a miserable, disagreeable little creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know. I thought there was an interesting, like, little thread in there, uh, and that, like, that whole thing never could have happened without colonial colonialism being a thing, you know? Like, right. Mary growing up in India and all that stuff going down, so... It was really interesting. And I discovered by reading A Little Princess where the main the main girl character ends up going to England when she's about 10 as well um, after growing up in India is that it was kind of common knowledge um, for anyone who lived in, like any British people who lived in India that you were supposed to send your children to boarding school in England because kids who grew up in India are never healthy. And I was like, interesting, I didn't know that. I read A Little Princess first, and then I read this, where Mary did grow up in India and was unhealthy, and I was like, oh, hey, there it is again. I mean, it probably probably was common knowledge, too, because, like, pre-modern medicine... uh, Europeans Everyone who, dies of cholera. Yeah, Europeans who went to, like, non-temperate climates generally did not do very well. Yeah. Uh, and just... <laughs> you know, like, there were a couple of attempts to for, to... for example, not in India, but there were a couple of attempts to build the Panama Canal that didn't work because, like, the entire white portion of the workforce kept dying off. Yeah. Yep, malaria, yellow fever, all that good stuff. Not not good for you. Yeah. Uh, 
And all the natives are like, God, you guys suck. I know, they're like, what are you doing here? Why are you, just go home. <laughs> Get the fuck no. out. <laughs> you come here to make us miserable, yet the only thing you can do here is fucking die. You're the worst. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. <laughs> White people are the worst. <laughs> um, yeah, so anything else you want to say about colonialism? <laughs> no, we'll save it. We'll start making it a thing we talk about in every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just like feminism. <laughs> yeah, feminism and colonialism. Right. Yeah, speaking of feminism, um, Ben and I already made this joke, but I think it just bears repeating that Colin is the patriarchy. Um, I think that aspect of his character is kind of hilarious, where like once he gets healthy, all of a sudden he's like, I'm in charge, I'm going to tell you what to do, and explain everything to you, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> Could you you like, suck, Colin. <laughs> hey, Colin, could you, I don't know, not? <laughs> and I actually was, when we were, like, kind of reviewing the characters, I was like, this is kind of interesting. I really like Mary and Martha. Like, Dickens inoffensive to me. And then all the other guy characters, I'm like, eh, they're not great. <laughs> but, so. uh, but as covered, uh, you know, Dickens not really a male. He's more of like a... Weird magical creature. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's kind of like genderless, I think. (laughs) Or at least, like, in terms of having, like, stereotypically male or female traits. Like, he's like a nice mix. He's very gender neutral. Yeah, no, comparing him to a Disney princess, I guess, I mean, even in jest, does kind of imply that he has some traditionally feminine, you can't see the quotes I'm making with my fingers, <laughs> traits that uh, that characters have had, and still do have at times. Yeah. Um, so, um, one of the other things I just wanted to like mention that I thought was kind of interesting is The Secret Garden is definitely viewed as, like I would say, a girl's book. Um, this was something my teacher asked me when I was making design, de- design decisions for these books. She was like, would you would you say like a, a little boy in the modern day would ever sit down and read A Little Princess or The Secret Garden? And I was like, very unlikely, unless well, for school or if his parents made him. Especially A Little Princess, just because of the title. Yes, especially A Little Princess. Um, but even The Secret Garden, I think, is probably... I think if I went and surveyed a hundred people and said, like, oh, would you expect a boy or a girl to read The Secret Garden, they would say a girl. Um, and partially because little boys don't read, which is very sad. But um, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting about the book is that, yeah, it is about Mary, but it's also about Colin and Dickon, and two of the three main characters are boys, but it's still considered a girl's book. And I just thought that was kind of like an interesting note. I don't think there's like a deep point to be made about it. But if you say like, oh yeah, this is definitely a girl's book. And then you're like, oh, but two of the three main characters are boys. That's kind of interesting. I am kind of now thinking about trying to do some sort of marketing experiment where you sold, tried to sell... Cop a new edition of A Little Princess, but you'd commissioned a cover art of, like, some stereotypical-looking, like, 
little girl princess, but standing on top of, like, a pile of monster corpses and holding a sword triumphantly in the air or something. (laughs) (laughs) See if any boys bought the book just on the cover art. (laughs) And then everyone would be like, wait, this book is not... (laughs) It would be um, fairly deceptive. (laughs) (laughs) Marginally deceptive. I haven't seen Monster One in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you could try to reframe the secret garden and be like, oh, yeah, it's about, you know, this little girl who moves to this new home. And there's like this big mystery about like a boy who's living there and this other boy who shows up. And to see if you could like try to frame it as much about the guys as possible, if you could actually market it a little more towards boys. Rewrite a com- or write a companion book that's the same story through Colin's eyes. Yeah, except who would want to read that? That would be a terrible piece of... (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know how you would even make that interesting. (laughs) Colin woke up and cried like a little asshole some more. (laughs) Nobody liked him. Like, oh, fuck, when is it looking ahead? Maybe you could write it where he had some sort of, um, like, some sort of mental disorder or brain injury or something where, like, internally he has all, like, these amazing, hilarious, snarky thoughts and that none of them can actually make it to his mouth because he's just, like, broken. (laughs) Make it, like, like, turn it into this huge tragedy. (laughs) And even when he's, like, feeling healthy and... all sure of himself, like, inside, he's like, no, what are you doing? You're acting like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> uh, I'd, be, I'd be pro that adaptation. It'd be too inside of a joke, though, because the only two people you'd be selling it to would be the two people recording this podcast. It'd be you and me, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was going to say that writing The Secret Garden from Colin's point of view is about as productive as the person who wrote Gone with the Wind from Rhett Butler's point of view, uh, which is a thing that happened. Of course. And no, negative three points. Don't do that. <laughs> the Secret Garden, actually, based on title, sounds like it should be a romance novel today. Yeah. Um, also, that could be a fun new game. Hey, if we, in April, if we don't have time for you to actually read a book, we can talk about some random publishing things and play some games based on, like, titles of classic books. Totally. (laughs) Sounds fun. If you just heard this title and didn't know what the book was, what would you think it was about? (laughs) Speaking of romantic ties, I guess it's kind of skipping ahead, but whatever. Um, This book does have some romantic ties. One of the... The version that I have is the centennial edition of the secret gardens they attached like a little scholarly essay to the end of it to make it seem more you know whatever a hundred years old i guess (laughs) it seem more a hundred years old (laughs) (laughs) and one of the things i I, I ended up reading that article of course and one of the things that was kind of interesting about it is something i hadn't really thought about where this author brought up um all of the ties to kind of the gothic romance novels. She specifically talked about the Brontes, um, but how 
you know, this takes place on the edge edge of a moor, and one of my personal favorite references when they talk about it during bad storms, how the wind is weathering around the house, and that's the term for, like, yeah. it being super windy, and you're like, oh, weathering heights, like, windy, rainy moor, and, um... And how, like, you know, this little girl moves in this house on the edge of a moor where it's all rainy and stormy, and she hears distant crying in the night, and there's, like, this mysterious figure hidden somewhere, and it's totally, like, the makings of, like, some kind of gothic mystery novel. Um, But then Burnett takes those tropes and subverts them and, like, turns it into the moor is actually great and healthy for you, and... You know, here's the secret, and everyone, like, can be healed, and yay, no one dies at the end. Uh, But I thought that was just kind of interesting that, like, according to this author, and after I read it, I agree with her that Burnett was purposefully uh, having these ties to these well-known gothic novels that people would be familiar with um, at the beginning to kind of set it up, and then, and then take a take a right turn so and it I makes, thought that was kind of cool it makes a lot of sense and authors definitely um, like all the time almost every author it seems like actually is saying oh I want to write a story about this um, genre or this kind of like set of related tropes but I'm going to put a little bit of a spin on it so it's not exactly that it seems like that's a lot more common than the, I'm going to set out to write, like, the perfect version of this thing that exists. It's more often like, the, I want to do this, but I want to subvert one thing. Or if the author is particularly subversive, or subvert, like, these seven things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, That's definitely a thing. Um, but I, I, I hadn't even, like, considered that when I read through it the first time, and then I was like, oh, totally, that's cool. So... Bravo, Francis Hodgson Burnett, for making your book a little more, a little less straightforward than I thought it was. Well, that's right. There you go. What? Nothing. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was just going to say, do you want to bring up class issues real quick? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, at the end. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> Next week, we'll be... No. Uh, uh, so, yeah, class issues um, handled surprisingly well, for once. Yeah, despite the fact we were talking about like, colonials or whatever, I mean, like, it's actually kind of interesting, as we said, like, these poorer characters, like, get to assert themselves and, and teach people things, and they're not just like, shat upon and, like, turned into buffoons or anything. Yeah, I had one moment where I was getting ready to get outraged because uh, Dickon was going to fetch some supplies for Mary, and I was like, they have, like, three pennies a week to live on, what are you doing? And then she's like, oh, here you go, here's two shillings. And he's like, oh my god, you could buy my house for this. And I was like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was one part, like, one of the reasons class was actually handled kind of well is like Mary and Colin were actually aware of money and were like we will totally pay you for feeding us and giving us these things and then the poorer characters were like yeah this is like way more money than we make and it was like really interesting that they actually just had like a frank discussion about money 
and that and that the poor people weren't like we're so generous of spirit we're gonna give you our food even though we can't afford it <laughs> you know just like the folk are supposed to do Right. Instead, the rich people were like, oh, hey, thanks. Let us pay you for your services like it is right to do. <laughs> like, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> I also appreciated that. All right. Okay. So that being said, talk about some of the themes here. Yeah. Um, um, so I think the... Um, I mean, we really touched on them, at least, even if we didn't come right out and say, this is a theme, but, like, the power of positive thinking uh, and the nature is good are kind of the twin drivers of the change from sullen, sickly children to energetic, happy children. Yeah, there's definitely just a theme of, like, growth and health and becoming more of a person and all of that's fueled by nature and growing natural things and you know being outside is great for them even when it's the middle of the winter so yeah and I thought uh, that you know I didn't really think about the gothic subversion thing either until you mentioned that essay you read but um the romantic aspects of it i was definitely thinking of when they're in that garden and describing the flowers and like just feeling good because they're surrounded by that stuff that's a that i mean that's like one of the definitive aspects of romantic writing yeah totally i uh, coming a little late in the era but um, also, Frances Hodgson Burnett was um, pretty old when she wrote this too. So, I mean, she was raised. Yeah, on, she, she was, was raised on that stuff. <laughs> and she also, um, she, this was later in her life. She like moved out to the country, and she herself was like got super into gardening around the time she wrote this book. So, well, there you go. Yeah, definitely a a. A couple um, life tie-ins, actually. I guess the other thing I read is that uh, Burnett had a son who died pretty young of an illness, and Colin is based off of her dead son. Um, this, like, sickly boy character, but in the fictional world, he gets to get healthy and survive. Right. Which might make you feel like a little bit of an asshole for being so hard on Colin, but whatever. <laughs> whatever. Colin's not dead. For all I know, if her son had lived, he would have been an asshole, too. <laughs> oh, dear. We're going to a bad place. Remember, remember what I said earlier about us not being quite as nice. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I guess strengths and weaknesses of the writing itself. <laughs> uh, so I liked that it was fairly straightforward. Um, Mary was, uh, as a character, like we mentioned, but I think the story as a whole was pretty well pretty well on a rail. Um, the place that it really could have gone with its... Um, touches of romanticism would be to interminable descriptions of the garden, which thankfully, oh, yes. which thankfully were avoided. Yeah. Um, 
Definitely. That was nice. And I think, as, as we said, like, more towards the end where Colin kind of got into his little lectures and stuff, some of that felt like it dragged a little for me. Um, by that point, I was like, okay, I get it. Like, I know what's going on here. Um, but it wasn't, like, unbearable. It doesn't... the. The book is really, like, actually fairly long. It kind of surprised me that it's it's close to 300 pages in the version that I own. Um, but it never feels, like, absurdly long. So that's definitely a point in its favor. Um, and I think it's a good, it's a good classic. Uh, I would definitely, like, if I had a 10-year-old child, I would be cool with them reading The Secret Garden. I would probably... I'd probably sit down and have those conversations about some of the weird, awkward uh, social and cultural things. Like, <laughs> please do not go to school and call your Indian friends blacks. Um, <laughs> like, let's let's have a chat about this. But, um, but I mean, I think it's solid. I think if I had read it as a kid, that I, I would have liked it. Yeah, and one of the things that I love to do when we read a classic is to bookmark a line or two of dialogue from a ch- from a child. Yeah, because it's always just absurd. Uh, it'll sound like an essay written in the style of the nineteenth century <laughs> by, by an uptight adult. Yeah, uh, and I mean the children in this certainly don't speak like modern children, but they're not modern children, and <laughs> they. Like, there weren't moments in this book where I had to stop and go, okay, what the hell is this? This dialogue does not sound like human beings. Yeah, the children are never like, verily, let me say unto thee that. Like, oh, God. <laughs> right. Let us fling mud to them. <laughs> <laughs> verily. Uh, yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne still wins the prize for having the worst child dialogue of all time. <laughs> Merrily edging out Stephen King's conception of how a 13-year-old talks. We should just have, like, a special episode on that. <laughs> we should. <laughs> uh, so, uh, let's see. Questions. I have a question. Um, yeah. All those exercises they were doing that they learned from that, was he, like, a weightlifter uh, or Yeah, something? like a bodybuilder guy. Yeah. Like, what were those exercises? Presumably they were, like, bodyweight calisthenics-type things because, you know... There are records of people doing that at least as far back as the Spartans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm guessing it was along those lines, but I'd be kind of curious to see specifically what form, like, early, late 19th century, early 20th century exercises, strength-building exercises yeah. were taking on. I don't know if they're doing, like, push-ups and squats, or if they're doing, like, real weird stuff, or, like, what's going on here? Or if it's, like, a push-up, but it's somehow, like, modified from the one we know to just, I don't know, look old-timey in some way you can't quite define. <laughs> that was the joke I was about to make. <laughs> They're, like, doing all the modern exercises, but somehow they all feel like they're 100 years old. Yeah, just because the guy doing it has a goofy mustache and a slightly sepia tone. Yeah, and like a weird one-piece swimming suit thing. When you <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, our other question is, does the magic work? When Colin gives all his little lectures, does all that, all that shit actually come to pass? Or 
is the sequel to the secret garden about the children becoming disillusioned about the world maybe the secret to the secret garden is the book the secret oh god which is basically which is basically about that idea isn't it <laughs> yes it's actually it's basically like the non-fiction version of the alchemist oh yeah of course another book that was all about put your shit out into the universe <laughs> and it'll do whatever you want it to do for some reason ah the secret much like the alchemist is nonsense i got it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're like they're like the totally the same philosophy. Um, yeah. All right. Well, your verdict. That uh, it was all right. I um I liked it. Um, I think it read pretty easily, especially for a classic, because some of those some of those are really interesting and. Um, you totally understand why they're classics right away. Other ones are super painful, and I don't understand exactly why they're classics until we have the discussion and realize that there are so many things to touch on that, of course, people use it in classrooms. Uh, so, no, this one was, like, readable as a book, not just as a classic. Yeah. I agree. It's It's pretty good. It's not, like, incredible, but... Um yeah, as a classic, it's like it's like a nice read, actually. So, yeah. All right. Well, what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading um, "Nearly Done with the Physics of Superheroes" by James Kakalios. Um, I read something or other of his on quantum physics a while back. I think I mentioned it in an episode, but. He's kind of, he's doing, he's a physics professor, and he's doing the thing where he says, oh, well, this superhero has ability X, and um, he, he always starts with, okay, so everyone has to have their miracle exception, so clearly this is physically impossible, but what about all these other things that are supposed to be possible, assuming this exception is possible, and then breaks down the physics of them, and it's basically a physics it, it really, when you boil it down, is a physics textbook that uses comic book characters to make the premises more interesting than you want to put a ladder of this height against this wall with the wind <laughs> blowing at this speed sort of thing. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Well, sounds all right. It's all right. Physics is a weak... <laughs> a weak area of mine as far as actual physics goes versus some silly layman's under vague layman's understanding of certain quantum ideas i guess yeah, me too yeah <laughs> physics physics was by far my worst subject in school so yeah um well like i said i listened to, i listened to about half of the goldfinch by donna tart um still not sure if i'm gonna finish it or not i I feel like I've put a lot of time investment into it, but at the same time, I'm like, but if I don't really like it, is it really worth another 15 hours of my life? So, yeah, we'll see on that on that front. Um, and I guess the other book that I'm reading right now is called Grave Mercy, and I actually don't remember the author, which sucks, um, but it's about... A girl in 1400s France who joins a convent that um, trains female assassins. Okay. And I don't know. 
I, I have had, I've realized that in 2016, I have not had the world's best luck. Like, I've listened to a fair number of books, and I've read a couple, and I don't know that I've read anything yet so far this year that I've liked more than just, yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> um, I was on Goodreads rating trying to rate some of the stuff that I've like been finishing and it's all like in the two to three star range for me like I haven't I haven't completed anything thing yet that I'm like yes that was really great um so unfortunately I'm kind of still on that well I've been um, I've also been reading a, a clockwork crown by Beth Cato Cato one of those uh and it's kind of interest it's kind of interesting i think it's probably technically ya um because the character is young but it's a female protagonist in like a steampunk fantasy setting Uh uh and the premise is uh basically so they're all like these books about magic using people who are badasses. How come the healer never gets to be the badass? And uh-huh. hence a premise is born. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty... It's This is the second book. Uh, the first one, I think, was published maybe last year or two years ago. And it's pretty interesting. I'll be... It's good enough that I'll finish the trilogy when the third book comes out, at least. Oh. Might be, might be one to write about with a healer female protagonist who is a badass without having to turn into an ass kicker or a mother character. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so I guess uh, if you have any questions or comments or uh, want to explain how magic works to us, you can uh, do so on our website, novelideaspodcast.com. Yes, you can also find us on Twitter. The Novel Ideas official Twitter is at Novel Ideas Pod, but Ben pretty much just runs that one. Um, so you can also find me on Twitter if you are interested at Classic Sum Up. And we totally forgot to uh, mention we're part of the Minerva Podcast Network at the top, like we mentioned. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to add that to the template so we can't forget. Hi. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you can find us at uh, MinervaMag.com. And through the Minerva's various social media outlets. Um, that Those might even be a bit more prompt in response than, uh, than what we do. That's true. Because <laughs> we're, pretty, we're pretty lackluster social media um, <laughs> correspondents, to be honest. And uh, you can also find us on iTunes, which is highly recommended with our beautiful banner and um, rate and review us on iTunes to make us super popular. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we've decided what we're doing next time just yet, but yeah. there, there will be something in April, even if it's us just uh, shooting the breeze about various book-related things, which seems kind of probable with the grad school schedule on the other end. <laughs> Yeah, my master's project is due um, like the first week or early in the second week of April, um, and then my directed study is due a couple weeks after that. So the chance of me like reading something over the next month and a half is not that likely. Yeah, so we'll probably just find a 
I'll, I'll spend this, I'll spend some time putting a few topics together, and we'll see if Gabs has a day in April, or has a day before then where she's actually free for an hour and a half, and we can just record real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so um, next episode on something, but probably not a specific book, and we'll be back to more normal perhaps in May. <laughs> yeah. In May, I, I graduate, or my final project is due April 27th, and then I don't have anything really after that, so I should actually be able to read a book, so it should be good. All right, uh, then that'll do it this time, and we'll yeah. see you next time. Bye.